Live from New York at the Chainalysis Links Conference, this is Public Key, and I'm your host, Ian Andrews. This is the fourth episode of a series that will air over the next few weeks. The series is brought to you by our friends at Deloitte, the official sponsor of Live from Links. Tokenization of real-world assets could be a game-changer for institutions and investment firms looking to use blockchain technology to expedite settlements of financial products. In this episode, I'm joined by Tim Davis, who's principal of the blockchain digital assets team at Deloitte. He's been working in digital assets since the Coinbase founders were still operating out of their garage. In the episode, Tim dives headfirst into the crypto regulatory architecture, the keys to effective legislation in the digital asset markets, and he provides insights on stablecoins, tokenized deposits, and global use cases he's seen blockchain technology used for. He clears up some of the hype by providing solid examples of how blockchain technology could revolutionize the entire TradFi industry. When you listen to this episode, we will have just kicked off Lynx EMEA in Amsterdam. If you missed Lynx New York and you couldn't make it to join me here in Amsterdam, then head to our YouTube channel and click subscribe. We'll post all of the best content to that platform soon. As always, you can find the link in the show notes. Joining me on Public Key today, Tim Davis, who is the Blockchain and Digital Asset Practice Lead at Deloitte. Tim, welcome to the show. Great to be with you, Ian. Excited. I think there's a, I would guess almost everyone listening to this podcast has heard of Deloitte. Major international corporation. You'll do a lot of things. But I'm going to guess that most people would not immediately think of digital assets as an area that Deloitte has a ton of expertise in. Why don't we start there? Talk a little bit about what does your team do? What's the overall approach to digital assets? Yeah, it's a great question. And we have been in digital assets, which may be even more surprising, for 10 years. So this we were involved at the very outset of this yeah. industry. We have over 2,000 people that focus on this every single day around the world. It is very much now a global practice. But, you know, we started very early on working with crypto natives, really just helping them grow their businesses and learning along the way. And I think what we have found is that all of that early insight with the crypto native community has now been very helpful for us as we're talking to institutions. Because institutions really want to understand how it gets done practically. They don't really don't want theory. And so a lot of that hands-on learning that came out of the crypto native community is really at the essence of what institutions now are looking for in terms of advice. When the practice started, I think yesterday you were telling me you all were working with Coinbase when it was just Brian and, and a couple of the early right. team members. Yes. in the garage era of the startup there at Coinbase. Like, what was the type of work that you were actually helping them do? Yeah, so early on, companies need help with just legal structuring, tax advice, just to get themselves set up so they can grow in a way that they're not going to regret how income and revenue is being recognized down the line. So some of those initial structural decisions are quite important. And then as they grow, you know, we sort of try to grow with them in terms of what's next needed. And so they eventually may need an audit. You know, they may need other types of controls, advice. They they may need some consulting help as they're looking to build. But yeah, we, we try to sort of just be there at each life stage, right? Yeah. So that we're, you know, helping them just take meaningful steps forward. Yeah. And as you look at the, the business today, that 2000 person army of digital asset expertise, how do you think about segments between 
crypto native companies versus banks or other institutions that are kind of trying to enter into the digital asset space? We have we have crypto natives as one sector. Yeah. We have the financial services institutions, the big regulated institutions typically. And then we have clients that are looking to just deploy blockchain. And so this is typically data transformation projects that don't oftentimes even involve digital assets, right? They're just looking to move data in a way that transforms the business. And then we have another sector that's corporate America and government. So, you know, as both corporate America and government looking to adopt digital assets, you know, we have teams that focus there too. So. Yeah, so you've got the whole spectrum. Yeah. How has that changed over the, the last year? Like I, I sense in our business at Chainalysis, you know, obviously there's there's been chaos, I think would be a fair characterization yeah. in the crypto native space. But the interesting impact of that chaos has been and around the world, it seems like government agencies that maybe didn't consider digital assets a priority yeah. are suddenly very interested in building expertise. Um, yeah. We're getting calls from you know, prudential regulators all around the world, as yeah. an example, who 15 months ago were sort of like, yeah, digital assets are a thing in our jurisdiction. Like, yeah. we, don't, we don't really need to understand this space or build any expertise. Like that's changed dramatically. I, I think it has. And obviously, as you implied, really for both reasons, both of the desire to foster innovation, but also to properly regulate the yeah. space. And, yeah. and, and that, that really is, I think, what we're seeing in the rest of the world now, the sort of desire to find that right balance, right? Because they don't want to sort of go either way too hard. They don't want to be too permissive and they don't want to be too strict. Yeah. That creates capital sort of not wanting to start their businesses there. Talk a little bit about the outside uh, the U.S. regulatory perspective. This is one of the things I was yeah. interested to get into because I think Deloitte being such a global presence, you know, I, I live in the U.S., like I get kind of a narrow American-centric yeah. view of the world. But I think the, the current regulatory perspective relative to crypto outside the U.S. is very different than what's been happening over the last few months here yeah. in the U.S. Other countries, uh, whether you see it as a, a benefit or not, you know, I'll leave that to debate, but the regulatory uh, architecture in other countries is simpler. It's me, Ian, jumping in before Tim tells us about why other countries have much simpler crypto regulatory systems. It would be great to get an American regulator's perspective on speed and efficiency of regulations, specifically in New York City, which may be one of the more demanding jurisdictions. Let's listen to thoughts from New York State Department of Financial Services Superintendent Adrian Harris, who sat down with our co-founder Jonathan Levin on the main stage at Lynx. You know, when we talked a year ago, it was no secret that the licensing process was slow. But I said then, as I'll say now, speed is not the right metric. Uh, and I think that's evidenced by the fact of who we didn't license, right? FTX and, and many other now infamous names. So we want to get it right, but it doesn't mean it can't also be efficient. So I think we've done a lot with the backlog granting new licenses, even since FTX, even as recently as a few weeks ago, but making sure the process is just smoother, adding transparency, letting the industry know, hey, your application has to be complete before we will start reviewing it. Hey, you get three deficiency letters before we're going to ask you to withdraw. Looking at things that had just been stuck in the pipeline and even the company hadn't been moving it forward. So how do we clear that out? And again, with the, with the guidance and the exam protocol. So it's just a much more robust framework now than it was a year ago. As Tim stated in his preamble, there's much debate on whether simpler and faster is better. But let's hear what he has to say about other jurisdictions. And now back to the podcast. And so take 
the UK as an example, the FCA. You have one regulatory agency that oversees all sort of financial conduct. And that allows them a level of sort of dis executive decision making that can put plans forward without as much sort of democratic sort of debate as to which way we go and which agency leads. That is certainly what we're seeing is, is attractive to a number of our clients is just to have the clarity on the roadmap going forward. And so, you know, we see that clarity is is coming with MICA, going to get passed in Europe. We see it, you know, in the UK. We see other important jurisdictions. I mean, you know, Singapore, Hong Kong, and even Japan is now beginning to roll out new regulatory regimes around things like stablecoins. So let's talk about Japan a little bit, because I think there's been a number of announcements from some of the crypto native companies, exchanges specifically, who are pulling out of the Japanese market. And it wasn't clear to me when I read those headlines, was that because of regulatory pressure or because of cost cutting? Because it was kind of happening in the moment where we saw lots of tech companies all around the yeah. world you know, cutting projects that were not short-term profitable. I couldn't parse that apart. I don't know if you have a perspective on the Japanese situation. Yeah, not specifically on that question. I haven't seen the same headline, yeah. but the Japanese market has always been a very well-regulated market, right? So they always sort of make sure that they're leading with a, a strict regulatory regime. But at the same token, there has for many years been quite a vibrant crypto community in Japan. It's just encouraging to see that this industry is really flourishing in other parts of the world. And it's sort of a little bit of just given the right sort of responsible guardrails with the right sort of encouragement, companies see the real benefit in this technology. And, and I think consumers begin to see it as well. And we're still at the very early innings. I do think back to the early days of the internet, right? And, and we're still struggling with some of the things that the internet brought us, like viruses and malware and, and hacking. But no one would debate the amount of value that the internet has brought to civilization. So I think we're sort of in those early years of the internet in crypto years where we're still dealing with some of the, the fallout. And, and sometimes it can be easy to sort of lose the vision of really we're on this journey of transforming society for the better in many ways. We're making systems more efficient. We're adding more trust to the way that companies can do business with one another. Yeah. It's just, it's a very exciting journey. There's a great chart out there that kind of maps the number of users onboarded to the internet and to the digital asset blockchain crypto ecosystem. And I think we're roughly in late 90s, you know, like 98, 99 timeline on the, the internet adoption curve. So if you can rewind back in time 20, 25 years ago, roughly, and think about what the internet was then, it does feel a lot like where we are with digital assets right now. There seems to be some promise if you're optimistic, but if you're a pessimist, you can certainly call yeah. out all the faults and, and say this thing's never going anywhere, yeah. right? It, it depends a lot on your perspective. I'm curious, we've heard a lot coming from the Middle East. Is Deloitte doing, doing any work there? Like the Emirates seems to want to create a global financial hub uh, kind of built around digital assets. Yeah, I think it's not only the Emirates. I think, you know, Saudi Arabia has Project Neom, so they're looking yeah. to sort of capitalize Neom's on it. the digital city yeah. Uh, initiative. Yeah. yeah, but it has aspects of actually a digital economy that go with the, the new city as well. Yeah, I think we're at a stage where partly because of some of the conflict in the world and the sanctions that have come with it, that there's a reallocation of capital to different parts of the world and new opportunities. It's one of the things that's sort of helping us with this new dawn of what's possible for the next sort of even 100 years, let's just say, in terms of how do we 
redefine how we do business and how can we better use technology for good to sort of help overcome some of the problems. And it's very easy to sort of look at crypto because the headlines might suggest there's just as much bad as there is good. But I'm very optimistic about this, that we will eventually figure out ways to effectively regulate some of the bad. But we're only just in scratching the surface and some of the good and the transformation that will come from this. So. Yeah, I think you have a unique perspective on this. You, you were born in Zimbabwe and you spent time all around the world. You made the comment to me yesterday that people critique uh, digital assets frequently for the volatility. But Volatility is sort of a relative concept. So if you operate largely in dollars, yes, you know, Bitcoin prices seem volatile relative to the dollar pair, but for many currencies around the world, it's actually a source of stability. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I think, you know, your, your perspective on the world is where you're coming from. And yeah. so, you know, I think we criticize Bitcoin because of its volatility relative to the US dollar. Now, the US dollar is still very much the global sort of reference point. But, you know, as you said, I mean, in countries that have high inflation, and if you're a citizen just looking for some stability, and you are attracted to things that give you some sort of independence from a system that's just simply not working for you. Now, I think we still are quite a ways away from regulatory regimes that's going to accommodate, because it would be a shame, although this is certainly a possible outcome, that things like these distributed systems get shifted sort of gray, sort of quasi-illegal, right? And I think, you know, as you think about these regulatory regimes, which are adapting, the one big question that's still out there is, can a regulatory regime regime accept distributed systems. Because the thing with regulated financial systems is this concept of accountability is all the way through them. Someone has to be accountable for everything that's sort of operating. And then you bring in this idea of a distributed system where, well, the accountability is a little fuzzy, right? It's actually the crowd that's sort of accountable. And through some mechanism, it just simply works. It's an education problem, but it's also, I think we have to think, and it's probably the burden is more on the industry to bring ideas to regulators to say, here's how I think you could regulate this. Now, a lot of it is really what chain analysis does, right? As yeah. we're talking about in this conference, it's, it's how do we bring intelligence to regulators so they can effectively sort of see what's going on. I mean, that's such a great point about the shift in concept and understanding, right? I think decentralization is thrown around in this space as there is direct value in decentralization. And I think that may be a little bit misleading to people. It's like, well, no, we have institutions because of lessons learned in the past, right? Which is when you have no one that is directly responsible and accountable, yeah. like bad things can happen. Your money's not in the bank when you go to withdraw it, right? And yeah. to, to draw a very simple example, we look at the crypto ecosystem over the last few years, we sort of have arrived at almost crypto institutions, very big exchanges. That dominates the landscape of how most people interact and engage with crypto. But we have this DeFi ecosystem that's really pushing the boundary of no middleman, kind of self-sovereignty in terms of investment and borrowing. Do you see that as the continuing growth area? Or do you think we end up with like an institutional layer kind of wrapper in DeFi and that becomes more of a, a back-end infrastructure? Yeah, I do see potential in DeFi. Yeah. And, and it, we've got to somehow figure out a regulatory regime so that DeFi can become accepted and legal. If it ends up being a centralized only regime, we would have significantly muted the value. And so there, to your point, there's tremendous value in these decentralized systems. And we need to do a little more thinking 
thinking about what are the governance models in decentralized systems so that they can stay sufficiently decentralized. There's still a little bit of wonkiness relative to how some governance decisions get made in decentralized systems. And they're certainly subject in some cases to sort of undue influence from some quarters. And particularly when the, the enterprise is small, it can be influenced by big dollars sort of buying their way into governance tokens, things like that. There's still a ways to go. I think, I mean, and I really hope that we have this marriage of some centralized institutions participating actively in working with DeFi institutions. Yeah. And maybe we end up in an area where a DeFi institution or facility has to get somehow certified. And so we may end up having DeFi entities that are certified by various regulators around the world, where that regulator would issue a digital certificate to that. And so is as a participant sort of smart contract, you could actually have the smart contract have a wrapper that has a digital certificate from a certain regulatory agency that says this carries a certain level of certification from that agency. So yeah. you you can yeah. use it with confidence. And if you don't have an outcome, if you have a bad experience, you know, you you can go register a complaint with that agency. That's sort of way off in the future. And yeah. sort of like, the, but, the thing that occurs to me as you describe that is who is the individual that takes the smart contract through that process? Like at some point, there's somebody yeah. signing a, a document that says right. like attesting or asserting to this is how the smart contract works, right? Yeah. Like all the institutions assume there's a person you know, yeah. the CEO that signs yeah. at the bottom. I think a lot of the DeFi protocols today would say, well, there is no person. You know, there is a maybe a legal entity, a decentralized autonomous organization yeah. that owns or operates right. the protocol, but that is is not a, an individual. Yeah. So how do we go through that, yeah. that certification right. process? It, it, but it could just be a vote of the governance holders. And, yeah. you know, and so you would set certain requirements to say, let's just say it has to be a super majority. And so yeah. then you have the vote, the vote gets recorded. Yeah. And maybe it's something that has to get revisited on like an annual basis yeah. where the governance holders have to re-vote. Do they want to continue to yeah. re-up with that particular institution? This but, is Any bets on who would be the first institution that would, would enable something like this? I, I don't know. I, my <laughs> sense is, is that it is likely to come from some of the smaller economies yeah. that are trying to compete for commerce. Yeah. You know, I think we all have a role to play in terms of making sure that those are robust. Because if you start something and it's a bit of a failure, then it just sort of craters the idea for some time to come yeah. other larger entities that are willing to try the same things. I'm curious to shift the conversation maybe to the real world kind of impact of some of this technology. Like I, I feel like we spend a lot of time talking about the theory, but payments is one area that I think you all are spending some right. time doing work that could potentially have some like very meaningful impact. How do you think about digital assets and payments? I mean, the payments system globally yeah. is terribly inefficient. It uses, in some cases, technology that's, you know, 30 years old. I mean, yeah. it's kind of like pre-internet. Uh, I mean, in, money does not move globally at the speed of the internet is one that phrase that's oftentimes used. But so there's no reason why it shouldn't, right? There's no reason why it should take two to three days to get money transferred from one part of the world to another part of the world. Blockchains offer a tremendous way to control that. And the internet's obviously already there, but then you have this additional layer of control. So whether it's stable coins, whether it's tokenized deposits, whether it's some outcome of CBDCs that are DLT based, there are obviously a number of CBDC research initiatives going on that are not DLT based, you know, that'll be ledger based. So the future is still very unclear, but you know, we have a number of initiatives like FedNow coming online yeah. Yeah. Uh, next year, um, if it sticks to the schedule. 
where it will bring a level of instantaneous settlement capability. Still a big debate about does a CBDC type offering in the US, does it even come to pass? I know there's a lot of debate about that right now. Yeah. And how does that compare with what the facilities of like a FedNow system have to offer? But there is a certain value, I think, in having corporates have a level of direct control. And so there's one vision that says, well, everything has to sort of run through the government. There's another vision that says, well, companies have a level of direct control. And this is sort of more of the crypto decentralized sort of view of being able to control their own, own money. And I think at the end of the day, there has to be some marriage, right? I don't think we will ever see true decentralized sort of value transfer that is in a regulated. I think there's some level of accountability that comes for sort of significant flows of value around the world that has to be happen and get reported up through regulated institutions, right? Anytime that you're offering something that's outside of that regulatory context, you're not going to have the right reporting oversight. So it's always going to be on the gray fringe and sort of unregulated, possibly illegal. That's the first step is I think sort of finding the pathways within these regulatory institutions. But, you know, there are a lot of big banks right now that have technology that's ready to actually execute on this vision. And it's just waiting for a little some of the regulatory pathways globally to be figured out. So. Interesting. So there's banks who, who have systems that are capable of doing instant or near instant settlement, not right. three days for a wire or an ACH to, to settle. Absolutely. They're holding that back. Yeah, it's really more the, the regulatory permission. There's also obviously a level of competition, right, between the banks in yeah. terms of some work that is, I think, still needed is standardization, right, yeah. in terms of, and there are payment standards out there that, you know, we're working towards. So I think with the right sort of will, and, and I think with governments understanding the value to their economies of facilitating these kind of payment flows, and as the term is sometimes used, increasing the velocity of money, this has a tremendous benefit to these economies in that you don't have to have as much money held that sort of sit and not really working. That's interesting because I've been wondering about, there's a lot of countries around the world where there's strict currency controls, like preventing foreign exchange. And it's it's often an attempt by the government central bank of a, a country to maintain a certain exchange rate relative to the dollar or the euro. And so it's very hard for people to move assets in and out of the economy. We hear all sorts of stories about how crypto stable coins or Bitcoin is, is being used to kind of bypass currency controls for you know international commerce out of these economies. And I could imagine a world where crypto adoption becomes pervasive potentially as a grassroots movement. Yeah. Like we see some of this in our data chain analysis where some of the most crypto adopted countries are those where, where this condition exists. But that ultimately undermines, I think, the fiscal monetary policy of, of the government, right? It, yeah. It's sort of like forced globalization in some ways, which I could imagine being destabilizing in a negative way. Now, that's without commentary on, you know, is the government in any of these countries good or bad, right? It's just like, do we want that to happen? And I think you're exactly right. We don't. I, yeah. I think we want to bring crypto out of the shadows. Yeah. And, you know, as you said, I mean, consumers around the world see so much value in this that they're so anxious to adopt it. But it's, it's never going to be an adequate solution while you're doing something that's sort of quasi-illegal in order to have to use it. So we really hope governments embrace the technology. Yeah. And it's a little bit like if you remember the Napster days, right, where yeah. everyone was sharing songs. And it really took the offering of a legal alternative where you had to then pay for your rented music to really make it 
no, it's untenable and, and then much more easy to prosecute the, stuff, the folks who win. Now, we don't have a legal alternative right now, and that's hopefully what we, our, we can our get CEO, to. Our CEO, Michael Granger, makes that exact point all the time. He's yeah. like, we're very much in the Napster days of yeah. the internet, where people are having to skate on the edges of, of legality yeah. in order to use crypto. Yeah. And hopefully governments see the uh, benefit of serving their consumers, and this is a consumer trend that clearly consumers want, and yeah. so it's a case of, well, how can we help them do it in a regulated safe way. I'm hearing a ton about real world asset. What's going on? Yeah, so this is a big trend. And I think a lot of the big banks see the opportunity to tokenize real world assets. So essentially what the idea is, is that you could offer an array of both more efficient, but programmable financial services and markets around real world assets, where they're just not available to that type of service today, because they're not in a digitized token form that can be offered in that way. So give me an example yeah. of what you mean when you say real world assets. The general philosophy is that where banks want to start is in what's considered near liquid. So like bonds, yeah. as an example. And then eventually over time, they will move to less liquid assets. That might include real estate, and then eventually other types of assets that are even less liquid than real estate. But essentially, you know, if you kind of go back to the 2008 crisis, a lot of the initial cause of the crisis was a lack of transparency, that these financial assets were getting sold in tranches and very dependent on a credit rating in terms of what was actually in there. With this new tokenized technology, you now have transparency to the individual assets in each of these tranches. So as you're selling group of like mortgage-backed securities or something like that, you can have transparency to, in essence, every single mortgage in that portfolio. And you can actually have algorithms that run that actually come up with your own independent assessment as yeah. to the quality of what you're buying and selling. So you're no longer having this dependence on a third party. You know, this is really interesting because I've heard people talking about tokenized real estate. And there's a couple companies out there who have actually, they've managed to put a house on a, on chain as an ERC-20 or something, a yeah. similar type token. But it's been for the retail transaction, right? So that yeah. individual is buying an NFT that grants them rights to an LLC that holds the deed to the house. Right. And I thought that seems like a lot of work or not really a materially different experience. Yeah. And people have argued me like, well, that opens different pathways for lending. But what you just said is actually much more interesting, which is the mortgage behind the house. Let's say you do a normal standard mortgage in the United States. Generally, the originator of that mortgage packages it up with other mortgages, sells it on to a couple banks or the U.S. government, who then turn that into a collateralized debt obligation, which contains hundreds or thousands of mortgages potentially. And those get traded back and forth between all sorts of financial institutions. But you can't really see what's in them easily today. But if each of the individual discrete mortgages were actually represented as a token or even a slice of the mortgage potentially, because I think you could maybe then fractionalize. Yeah, you could separate the servicing rights from the underlying asset and yeah. things like that. And so all of a sudden now I have a similar financial instrument, but with a much greater degree of auditability and transparency. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that seems and, really and just powerful. much greater efficiency and control. Yeah. You know, so from a regulatory standpoint, it's yeah. a much better answer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The banks end up being much more informed and competitive. And so 
the end of the day, it reduces the risk for the banks, so the banks should then be able to actually offer better rates all the way down to the end consumer. Yep. It, it seems like it could also allow people who are willing to take on more risk for a better rate. Like right. it broadens the, the likelihood of getting financing because you've, again, got more transparency. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we're talking about sort of at the, the macro end of the market, but yeah. at the micro end of the market, it opens opportunities in developing nations yeah. as well, yeah. where you can put an asset sort of as collateral behind a loan in yeah. a way that you wouldn't be able to kind of get a loan easily. And so the ability to be able to tokenize. Now, what we need is the legal systems that actually connect the legal system to the blockchain. And so the example yeah. you started with of someone saying, well, I'm going to sell my house on the blockchain yeah. and create an NFT. In most cases, the actual legal underpinning of that arrangement is still based on wet signatures on pieces of paper, yeah. not on the blockchain. Yeah. So. The blockchain doesn't represent ultimately the legal arrangement. And we do need to have some sort of evolution either in the law or in the regulation that allows this asset tokenization yeah. trend to come about. Is that the barrier to the, the kind of institutional side, this, the CDOs, where we're seeing those mortgages being tokenized? Yeah, we, we see tokenization happening today in the OTC market, but yeah. the liquidity is small, right? Yeah. So you've got sort of small parcels of liquidity. So it's kind of almost like in a test case where it's proving that the technology works. I think we do need both the regulatory framework to do this at scale and some evolution of the actual law as to things being able to be actually represented on the blockchain as the legal record. Maybe as we wrap up the conversation and uh, head back to the conference, when you look out over the next couple of years, what are you, what are you most excited about in this space? What do you see as the big innovation that's going to happen? Yeah, we've touched on some of it. I mean, I think we'll see that the banks, I think, recognize that there, there is a competitive necessity to be in this space. And I'm hopeful that the banks, you know, and firms like ours, I mean, we all have a role to play in helping regulators understand sort of how this can be regulated and it really needs to be right so as opposed to in some cases we sort of sit back and we wait for the regulators to just come up with regulations but they, they need a lot of industry help so yeah. it's this public-private partnership so I'm really excited about that we will begin to see more of this collaboration between industry and regulators to come up with responsible uh, frameworks I think with a lot of the crypto asset and virtual asset rules around the world, there will be a lot of lessons learned, right? In terms of what's working, what's not, and so it'll be fine-tuned. But the benefit will accrue to those regulators that have actually put some regulations out there to say, okay, here's how we want to do it, and we're going to monitor it closely. So there's definitely a value in the learning, right? And being along for the journey. So we're very excited about that. I think we will just continue to see the actual benefits of crypto impacting more and more of the masses of society. And I think it'll have to come through a regulated sort of frame. So it'll have to probably come through the banks and with regulation, the banks will then be able to offer regulated services that take all the advantages of crypto and offer it to the retail public that way. And that way you're buying a service from an enterprise you trust, but it has all the benefits as opposed to right now, there's just too many risks and dangers to trying to sort of get a MetaMask wallet and like any number of things can go wrong, right? So we've kind of got to move away from that world to a world where we're sort of finding the right balance where it's not all just competitive. We want to keep you just as a customer where it's really transforming and bringing the all the benefits of this economy to the end consumer, but in a, a regulated safe ways. Makes a ton of sense. Thanks for joining us on the podcast, Tim. Enjoyed the conversation. Great to be with you again. Yeah. Thanks. All right. Bye-bye.
Hey there, thanks for listening to a special Live From Links episode of Public Key. This is the fourth episode of a series that will air over the next month. The series is brought to you by our friends at Deloitte, the official sponsor of Live From Links. It seems you can't go to any conference or meetup around the world without debate of how do we achieve privacy and also satisfy regulatory and compliance requirements. Our team at Chainalysis shares insights on one side of that debate by going in depth on the industry's leading privacy coin, Monero. In the blog, we cover the basics on Monero, its privacy-enhancing features, and what the future holds for privacy coins in an era of increased regulatory scrutiny on anonymity-enhanced coins. Head down to the show notes and read the entire blog.